Journalists work relentlessly to give the most vulnerable people in our society a voice, but at what price? It might mean carrying the trauma of reporting on death, destruction and abuse. It might mean being pursued through the courts to reveal a confidential source. It might mean going up against some of the biggest institutions in the country to reveal the truth. Or, as we've seen recently, it could mean having your home or workplace raided by police, combing through your digital records to try to find a source that you're trying to protect. At the Walkleys, we've been running a national public awareness campaign developed in partnership with Naked Communications. You might have seen it on your TV or in the newspaper, even on a billboard. It's called What Price Would You Pay? And I should warn you that some of the things we'll talk about tonight might be a little bit intense if you're a survivor of assault. I know we're going to be covering some of those topics, so just consider this a little bit of a, a content warning. But essentially what we're doing with this campaign is we're asking Australians to think about the price that they'd pay for the quality journalism that impacts everyone's lives every day. Tonight you're going to hear from more award-winning journalists about what it takes to make great journalism and why it matters. What we're asking for with this campaign is just that people think about why journalism is important and what they can do to support it. It's as simple as, you know, you might want to subscribe to your favourite trusted news site. You might like to make a donation to the Walkley Public Fund or you might just like to share the campaign and make sure your friends know and think about these issues as well. Now, unfortunately, our Chief Executive, Louisa Graham, couldn't be with us tonight. She's very sick, so I will be your moderator. But it's my great pleasure to be joined by some wonderful journalists. Uh, we have Nina Fennell and John Lyons here with us and Sarah Dingle will be here any minute. Sarah is a dual Walkley award-winning investigative reporter and presenter with the ABC. Nina is a freelance journalist and a published author. And John is also at the ABC. He's a three-time Walkley winner and currently the head of investigative journalism. We've just done some really brief introductions, but I think rather than me reading off a laundry list of someone's biography, it's really nice to hear journalists talk in their own words about you know where the career has taken them and, and what that means in the context of tonight's discussion. So I might start with you, Nina. You have worked a lot reporting on survivors of sexual assault and often in the context of really powerful institutions like courts and universities. So could you talk us through some of the challenges that you faced as a journalist? Yeah, sure. So a few years ago, I decided that I was going to try and do 52 articles in 52 weeks on campus sexual assault. And it took me a little bit longer than that to actually get to my 52nd article. But in that process, I was hearing about rape and sexual assault pretty much, well, literally every day, which has its own impact on you as a journalist in terms of the trauma content that you're being exposed to. But the thing that probably that really still sits with me as being the most distressing was probably the legal battles that I came up against. So since then, I think I've had eight defamation suits, or at least eight defamation threats. Um, the other thing, though, that was really interesting about that particular project was for part of it, I partnered with uh, Channel 7's Freedom of Information editor, Alison Sandy, and we did, it was actually the largest Freedom of Information investigation ever in Australia's history, where we were FOIing all 39 public universities for the sexual complaint misconduct data and what the punishments had been. And so all we wanted was the number of how many students have complained to you and of those complaints, how many have resulted in some form of punishment. And the level of, of obstruction that we came up against was extraordinary to the point where Monash University in particular was without question the most difficult. 
they employed a group called FOI Solutions and we almost ended up in the Supreme Court with them trying to get access to that data. And so then at the same time as this is going on, the universities are putting out statements talking about their commitment to student safety, their transparency around this issue and so on. And we're sitting there thinking, well, actually, you know, we're seeing how hard it is that you're fighting to withhold this information, which is, you know, the public has a right to know the level of complaints. So it got to the point where at one stage, Alison said, well, why don't we FOI the police for any police reports of sexual assaults which occurred at the following street addresses? And then we listed the street addresses of universities. And what came back from that was 500 pages of police reports, which gave an awful lot more information. And it was when I was combing through those 500 pages of police reports that I saw one in particular that was a police report that mentioned there being CCTV footage of a sexual assault or an attempted sexual assault occurring at Sydney University in the car park where a stranger had come up behind a young woman and grabbed her and dragged her between two car parks. And the police had noted that that footage clearly identified the person of interest and that it would be highly valuable to release that. There's still photos of the person of interest to the public for identification. And when we went to Sydney University to see if we could get those still images, they initially object to the release of that, which we found extraordinary because we thought it is absolutely in the public interest for this, pers for this offender to be identified. So I think, yeah, for me, yes, the stories themselves have an impact, but what's far more impactful is actually coming up against the institutions and having to fight these kinds of fights just to get that information out into the public domain. It is a real fight, and I think we'll be talking more this evening about some of the legal restrictions that journalists face. But I might open it up to you now, John, and I think probably a lot of people here in the audience are really interested to hear what you have to say, given what's happened over your busy last couple of weeks since you found yourself live-tweeting the AFP raids at the ABC's Ultimo headquarters. Were you surprised by the response from Australians and from people abroad who are following your reporting on Twitter? Well, thanks, Claire, and everybody for coming along and for the Walkley Foundation for this evening. It is These are important subjects, and I'm glad that, that you're interested in enough to come along to this. Two weeks ago today, the six members of the AFP walked into the ABC office and spent nine hours there, essentially, going through. They came in with a series of keywords of documents that they wanted to fish for, essentially. On, with one of the most powerful warrants that I've ever seen. I've been on an AFP warrant myself over some documents that I'd had from Defence Intelligence many years ago, but this document was all-encompassing. Essentially, it allowed them to download 9,214 different emails and communications, which for me, sitting there for nine hours live-tweeting this, was horrifying because it goes to the very heart of what we do, we can't do our job if whistleblowers, if people like you sitting in the room today don't trust that you can come to us with stories. The problem with what the AFP has done, I think, it reflects something that's been growing incrementally for a decade or so in Australia. It's been facilitated by both major parties. The Liberal and the Labor parties have both endorsed this. The Defence Intelligence Establishment out of Canberra, some of the powerful public servants have been behind this. And it essentially means that what we do, our tradecraft as a journalist is now, 
we have to reassess what we do. Claire's question, yes, I was staggered by the level of interest. Thousands and thousands of people by the hour were following the story as I was tweeting it. I had no idea really sitting in that room, but the international response was fast and furious. The New York Times was sending messages to me during the thing saying, is this actually happening? The BBC wanted to do interviews. I did a phone hookup with Oxford University two or three days later with some Reuters fellows, journalism fellows from Reuters. And it was really interesting that they were from all different countries, these journalists, and an Indian journalist came on the line. I was here in Sydney, of course, and she said, listen, five years ago in India, we essentially had a fairly free, a relatively free media in the space of five years that's been crushed. We don't have a free media in India anymore. Then a Hungarian journalist said it's funny, over five years he used the same time period. He, he used the phrase, the slow bulldozer of the powerful institutions has just come in and crushed the media in Hungary. So all these foreign journalists saying the same thing. So what, what, what happened with the AFP raids is part of an international effort by people in power to essentially stop us knowing the truth. And I think we really have, that's why forums like tonight are important. We have to reassess what we do and how determined we are to do it. John, and thank you for reminding me, if you want to have your say on this, MIA, the Union for Journalists, is running a campaign with the support of pretty much all of the media in Australia. You can go to a website, journalismisnotacrime.org, and then it makes it really easy for you to add your details and it will send a letter to your local member in Parliament to let them know that we want the government to, to act on this. Sarah, I want to pick up on something that John just said. Your work is a little bit different to what we've been talking about, but as he said, as journalists we can't work without trust, and I think you've done a lot of investigative reporting on really different subjects, but a common thread is that you often work with sources who are quite vulnerable, and I think that takes a lot of work, and you also need to take care of subjects like that. So could you maybe talk us through, you could give an example or just speak generally about some of the sources that you've worked with on different stories, how you go about building trust with someone and how you make sure you take care of them through the process and even after a story goes out? Look, it, it's different with each person and it's different with each situation. I just sort of try to establish contact, not assuming that they want to talk to me, but trying to think of, you know, some reason for them to talk to me and how that might be helpful to them. There have been people who have decided not to talk to me in the past, but I'm quite fortunate in that they have been in the minority. I've had people who consulted with their psychologists or mental health professionals about whether or not they should talk to me and then come back and gone, oh, the psych said yeah, so that's okay, which is an interesting experience. But look, it, it really depends on how fragile your source is, the kind of care that you need to take. Obviously, there's a, a minimum, but particularly if you're dealing with children and their parents or people who have had suicidal ideation in the past that you know about or, or things like that, you do have a real moral obligation, I think, to not just, you know, do an interview and, and leave, but maintain contact just because and for as long as you feel is necessary and you're emotionally able to do it. Nina touched on this a bit when you sort of start trawling through massive amounts of other people's sexual assaults and, and there is such a thing as vicarious trauma and you, you don't 
always pay it the respect that you should because you think, well, it didn't happen to me. Who am I to to whinge and whine about this kind of thing? But you do have to also know your own emotional limits. So with some people, I've kept in touch with them years after a, a story has gone to wear and, you know, has gone off into the ether. And not because I wanted anything else from them, just because I wanted to know how they were going and how they were growing up or how their lives had changed as a result, I think is my answer. Thanks, Sarah. I want to move now a little bit to talking about some of the the legal challenges that journalists face. We've seen suppression laws play out in Victoria earlier this year with some of the coverage of Cardinal Pell which I think a lot of people around the world were sort of shocked that something like that was still in effect. And it does seem to suggest that there might be some space for the law to catch up with how the media and indeed the world is working in that space. But on a a different way that the law can restrict journalists, Nina, you were saying before that you've faced, you've been subpoenaed to try to uncover a source in your work. Could you speak to that? Yeah, sure. So I'll just give a little bit of context about the case. So this was a case, a story up in Queensland where a university staff member called Douglas Steele had raped, uh, digitally raped a 20-year-old Indigenous student and after that assault he was charged and he was not stood down at the university. He was actually, since being charged, promoted and made academic advisor to Indigenous students He then pled guilty to the rape and again the university did not stand him down. They allowed him to continue in that role until sentencing and at sentencing he was given a two-year jail sentence that was suspended down to four months because another staff member at the university provided him with a glowing character reference. So when I broke that story, it was a it was a fairly major news story up in Queensland for all the obvious reasons and the university of course hit back by saying well we were not aware that he had been charged we you know wouldn't have promoted him had we known and i had whistleblowers telling me quite a different story so i had worked with those whistleblowers for quite a lot of time and working as a freelancer in a different state trying to build that trust it takes time and i've never dealt with a group of whistleblowers so petrified as these individuals and the reason why they were so scared was and you know I'd been reporting on universities for some time and I'd never spoken to staff members who were this scared and I said to them you know it was all through throwaway email addresses and fake names and everything and but I was trying to get some actual documentation and I said what why is it there this additional level of fear and one of the staff members said Nina it's not like in Sydney where you've got Sydney Uni up the road then you've got UNSW five minutes away and you've got UTS down the road this university is the only one in town it was James Cook Uni and they said you know if if we lose our jobs we literally have to sell our house move our kids schools you know there's no other show in town that I can go and get a job with so we are terrified So in the end, of course, I got the documentation that showed that actually people at the university had been informed that he had been charged with that offence. And subsequent to that, down the track, I was subpoenaed for all of my sources, every text message, email, Twitter message, Facebook message, piece of written paper, everything that had produced to that series of reports that I'd done, which included all kinds of information and in Queensland there are no shield laws for journalists so what I was looking at was hand over all of that material or face contempt of court and potential jail time and to cut a long story short I didn't hand it over and we we fought it and in the end I didn't 
the sort of last hour managed to have the subpoena dropped and so nothing was handed over but I can tell you that that was a very stressful three months of my life and something that for me I hadn't realised that there are no shield laws in Queensland that was news to me and it's not just Queensland that there are no shield laws I think it's the Northern Territory as well and in other places the shield laws are sort of there's varying degrees of protection that you have as a journalist so that's I mean that's yeah probably one of the big legal issues I've come up against. I know that the idea of introducing uniform shield laws in all the states of Australia is one that Mia has been campaigning on for some time. And if these are issues that you're interested in digging into every year on World Press Freedom Day in early May, Mia does release an annual report into press freedom in Australia, so that can be a great resource if you want to read up on some of these issues. Nina, I guess a particular challenge for you as well is that as a freelancer, you don't have the backing of, say, an in-house legal team that a journalist working for a bigger publication or news organisation might have. So, And I think I read a statistic today where almost half of the journalist workforce is in either an insecure or a freelance working state. So that means that there are a lot of journalists out there that don't have those legal protections. And I mean, you could maybe talk about what that feels like as a freelancer when you're going up against someone a lot bigger and richer than you, what that feels like and yeah. whether you think it's going to have an effect of silencing stories. Yep, so one of the things that I should highlight as well is that like defamation suits are incredibly common, at least you know being threatened with defamation. So I think it's, there was some stat that's come out recently, about 10% of journalists in the last year have received a defamation writ. As a freelancer, the first time it happened to me, I was absolutely petrified because I didn't know what I was up against. As time has gone on and I have more awareness about what it is that I'm up against, some of that anxiety has gone out of it. But I also now view it very much as an intimidation tactic that's used to try and shut down journalism. And I guess the other... I mean, the other time that I've almost been in contempt of court and there's a big campaign around it at the moment. So in Tasmania and the Northern Territory, if you are a sexual assault survivor, you are currently not allowed to speak to media using your real name. And so I had a case in 2017 where a rape survivor from Tasmania had contacted me. Her perpetrator had gone through the criminal justice system, had gone to jail. There were no other outstanding legal issues. And she wanted to tell her story using her real name. And I again, coming from New South Wales and being a little bit ignorant about the laws in other jurisdictions, went ahead and began researching and writing her story, drawing on the court documents and so on and so forth. And then just as we were about to go to publish, the lawyers stepped in and said, no, there's this really bizarre law in Tasmania called Section 194K of the Evidence Act. And even though she wants to be named, if you name her, you can be found in contempt of court. And it's not an empty threat either. There was a case in 2012 where a Tasmanian publication named a rape survivor who wanted to be named. And despite the fact that she wanted to be named and consented and was over the age of 18 and all of those things, they prosecuted and they fined the publication $20,000. So the campaign that we've been running for the last year has been called hashtag let her speak and originally it was to change the Tasmanian law on behalf of this one particular young woman that's why it was let her speak now it's changed to let us speak because now a whole lot of other survivors have joined the campaign in both Tas and the NT saying that they want the right to be able to control if and when they give their name and that the last thing I'd say about that is that the very nature of rape and sexual assault is that it strips you of power and control so to then have the state say to you you don't have the basic dignity of your own name 
and you have to apply to us to earn permission to use your own name in the media, it's not only incredibly paternalistic and patronising, it's potentially re-traumatising, but it also means that there can be no Me Too movement in either of those jurisdictions while this law still is in place because victims can only speak from the shadows, which defeats the whole purpose of Me Too. That's extraordinary. What, what, sorry, oh, yeah. do you mind if I jump in there, Claire? <laughs> what was the purpose of that? Is that supposedly to protect the perpetrator? No, or no. Or to protect identities or to... No, so the law was introduced in Tasmania in 2001. It was introduced with the victim's best interest in mind. It was introduced to supposedly shield the victim from us exploitative journalists oh. who would coerce them into telling their stories against their will. The problem is the law goes too far by excluding from that the, the possibility that there may be some victims who actually want to tell their own story. So one of the stories that I broke earlier this year was, and this bit is quite distressing, so just a content warning, but it was a gang rape survivor from Tasmania who in the 90s, when she was 16 years old, she was abducted on Christmas Eve, gang raped, and then taken to dig her own grave. And she escaped that. And the men who did that to her went to jail. And she has waited 25 years for the lead perpetrator to die, to tell her story in full. And he passed away recently. And she now wants, for the very first time, to write an autobiography and to tell her whole story and what, what that has meant in the context of her life. And she's one of the most extraordinary women I've ever met. And because of this archaic gag law, any publisher that agrees to publish her autobiography and include her real name and identity can be found in contempt of court. And if she, in fact, if she publishes it herself, she can be found in contempt of court. So the law, I mean, it's a fairly obvious reason why we want to reform that law. But yeah, initially put in place with good intentions, but has ended up with these really extraordinary byproduct consequences. I think that's the case. I mean, all of the, the laws that journalists are chafing against usually introduced with good intentions or they're, they're balancing attention with something else so you know national security coming up against you know the ability of journalists to have the the right to protect their digital information and their confidential sources it would be great to hear from the rest of you on the panel about how important whistleblowers are to the work you do sarah do you work with many whistleblowers in your investigative work sometimes I think whistleblowers are an intrinsic part of journalism and I agree with John, the effect of the raids or the intended effect of the raids is to stop those people from coming forward. It is a chilling, has a chilling effect. And that's a great, great shame. As it stands, even before the raids, the best way of securely getting information was just handing over a sheaf of papers to someone where there was no CCTV because we cannot trust any of our digital communications. We cannot trust that they will not be open, that there are not back doors, that things will not be handed over to authorities and shared. And it just makes our job a hell of a lot more difficult, which does sort of sound like a nine to five grind kind of whinge, except our job also aims to make society better at its best. If I could add to that, and this is a call out to any whistleblower who might be either in the please audience contact us. or, yeah. please, um, please contact or watching us. this when it's relayed on television, please, the best thing you can do in this day and age is the old snail mail. Mm. If you have a document or a letter, if you want to expose corruption, malfeasance, illegality, the old-fashioned letter, 
put it in an envelope, walk up to the nearest thing, the, the big red thing there. I know a lot of younger people don't know what they're for, but those red things that you can actually open it and or you can stick a thing straight in or you can open it if it's a parcel and you can fit more in there. But if you send that, you're welcome to send it to me at the ABC or Sarah Dingle or yes, Nina, any of us. Just address it to us. That comes to the ABC. We open it. There's no digital trail. And if the intelligence services and, you know, are watching this as well in Canberra, this, they don't want to hear this because they can't really, if someone sends us a document in an, in an envelope, there's no digital trail. What they're trying to do now is if there's a story that embarrasses them, the two stories that prompted the raids two weeks ago, one by Annika Smethurst in the Sunday Telegraph and the other one by 7.30 report, embarrassed the government. They weren't in any way endangering anyone's lives, national security, they embarrassed the government. So what they do now in Canberra, you'll have you know people who run departments or run intelligence services who say, OK, journalist X got this story, let's do a complete you know, X-ray on journalist X's communications. They go back through everything, you know, and now we, in journal we as journalists have to understand this and we have to bring our whistleblowers along with the process. A lot of people don't understand. They think if I go and meet someone and we'll get on public transport and go off to a park and glebe and sit on the bench and they can tell me the story. Buses, for example, will keep the CCTV footage of you on the bus for 30 days. So the big state can actually find out that on that date, they'll trace it back. If your story appears, then they'll go back through everything, looking for what connections you had, did you go to this cafe, all the cameras everywhere. So we have to get back. A journalist at the ABC, someone said to him last week, I've got a document I'd like to send you. And he said to me, what, what should I do? And I said, ask him to send it by mail to the ABC. Whistleblowers, without them, we can't operate. Real journalism doesn't operate. Without whistleblowers, we get PR. There's enough PR and crap out there on the internet and on television anyway. The tragedy of, of what happened, what is happening now is that if you see corruption, you're working in a local hospital, Liverpool Hospital or Geelong Hospital, and you see something going wrong, you see a doctor working 18 hours straight without a break, and you know that patients are suffering as a result, you want to blow the whistle. The community should know about that. But if you can be tracked the whole way through, then the hospital can find out that this nurse or this doctor contacted this journalist on that date. It's all about trying to... It's the powerful people trying to close down things that are embarrassing. And my view is, why should journalists know all this stuff and not the general public? And I think if there was a good thing about two weeks ago with the AFP, there was a big backlash the AFP was surprised by the backlash and I'm told that they were planning more raids the following day on another media organisation which would have been the fourth hostile attack on the media in a 48 hour period. They pulled back on that raid because they were embarrassed by the backlash over the ABC. But they raided Annika Smethurst's house in Canberra, spent seven hours going through her bedroom, her underwear, her kitchen, everything. Then the next day they rang Ben Fordham at 2GB, Home Affairs Department, Peter Dutton's department, and demanded that he reveal the source of a story that he'd broadcast. He said, no, I'm not telling you. The next morning they raid the ABC. The next morning I think they were planning to raid another media organisation. If you think about that, I mean, that's, that's a full-on attack on the media in my view. And we all have to say this has gone too far. This is really, really bad for us knowing what's going on in our community.
And John, do you think the backlash has been enough that the government will back off or do you think we're going to see more of this kind of intimidation? I think that they made a bit of a strategic mistake. If you were the powerful people in the departments in Canberra and you wanted to increase your power and show your power and intimidate people, you don't hit News Limited first and then the ABC 24 hours later to hit the two largest media groups in the space of 24 hours. When they raided the News Limited journalists' office, they upset all of News Limited. Then they raided us, they upset the ABC, and then I went on TV and said, obviously, News Limited will be just as upset by the attack on us as they were on the attack by themselves. So they created this coalition now. Next week in Canberra, the head of the ABC, the head of Channel 9 Fairfax, the head of News Corporation are all going to the press club next week for a unified fight against this. And I think suddenly the politicians... It's on the front page of the tabloids, this story. The Herald Sun had a huge front page saying, with AFP in blue, anti-free press was the headline, with AFP highlighted in blue. For the government and for the AFP, that's a disaster to be on the front page, being hammered on the front page of the tabloids. Kind of the opposite of what they were going for, I suppose. A little bit of a change in tack, but John, you've also had a long career in investigative journalism and you also spent quite a few years as a correspondent in the Middle East. What were some of the more challenging situations that you faced there as a journalist? That's a good question because I think it's important to keep in perspective our situation in Australia. As much as our freedoms are under attack and the media is under attack in my view, we should keep it in perspective. Journalists around the world at the moment are being imprisoned, being killed. That's not happening in Australia yet. No journalist has been imprisoned in Australia, although, as Louise Milligan said in the video we saw before, she was close to because they were wanting our sources. And the, the ironclad commitment of us as journalists is we cannot simply ever reveal our sources. That's that's an immutable rule and none of us would do that. We'd all be prepared to go to jail for that. But in countries like Turkey, there's more journalists in, in jail tonight in Turkey than any other country in the world. Look at what we saw the report today of Jamal Khashoggi, you know, for, from Saudi Arabia, cut to pieces. According to the UN report, the security guard of the Crown Prince saying, has the sacrificial animal arrived in the building yet? With the, they had their hacksaw, their bone saw ready. I've been to places like Iran, Saudi Arabia, where if you're a journalist they don't like, you just disappear. I mean, you're never heard of again. You may stay alive or you may be killed. The Philippines, all around the place, Chinese journalists. So, you know, I think that I've seen overseas in the Middle East a lot of incredibly courageous journalists in places like Gaza who are shot dead or who, you know, are imprisoned simply trying to do their job. So, in a sense, we have a relative luxury in Australia that we don't have this same level of physical danger. But this is also the problem. We take it for granted in Australia. We've always taken for granted a free press, a free media. Our parents and our grandparents did. We're on the brink now of losing that. And what frustrates me is I don't think enough people out there fully catch on what that means. We'll end up an ignorant society where the people know very little because the journalists have been muzzled. That's a really good point. Thank you, John. On that note, I'd like to ask each of you on the panel, I suppose, what do you wish that Australians understood about the work and the sacrifice, the resources that go into making good quality public service journalism? What do you wish Australians understood about how hard some of that work is to produce? 
Gosh, well, having received some very detailed feedback this morning on some of my stories, I would say the first thing is that there is no vast conspiracy. But journalism takes a lot of time to make, particularly if you work in television, slightly less time if you work in radio, but it's a grind. You know, the, the fun bit is about 5% of your time. The non-fun bit is about 95% of your time. So there is a lot of work and thought and at the ABC we have multiple layers of editorial checking and subbing and control and people don't just shoot their mouth off about something and you know I suppose what I'm saying is we're human too so please don't sledge us too hard. We do take a lot of pride in our work and we want to make it the best we can and we need you for that as well. I think it'd be good for people to understand too that the confidentiality that a lawyer has with a, a client or a doctor has with a patient should be just as inviolate for a journalist and a source. It's not just the media, by the way, that's under attack now in Australia. There's a very disturbing case in Canberra at the moment, Witness K, and he's a former intelligence officer who is basically going to be charged with having, you know, allegedly revealed information. His lawyer has also been charged, Bernard Caleri. It's an incredibly disturbing case because, you know, once upon a time there were journalists and, and lawyers doing their bit and the sort of the police tended to keep away from them and understand they're doing their job. They're now coming for the journalists, they're now coming for the lawyers. I mean, Bernard Caleri is the legal representative of this person and yet ASIO raids his office and takes his documents. So this is yet another case. There's the whistleblower from the Australian Taxation Office who went public because there was a culture, according to him, in the tax office where if someone was behind in their taxes, the authorities just said, well, hit them with the compulsory garnishy, basically. Don't worry about their individual circumstances. It might be a, a shopkeeper who couldn't pay their rent for a few months or whoever it was, just hit them all with the same thing. His view according to his version, was everyone should be treated differently. He's now facing a total of 161 years in prison. There's several whistleblowers in Australia. So I think that, you know, we've got to support openness, democracy. We still need everybody out there to help us with our job. If you see something going wrong or an illegality or something you think is clearly wrong, please, you can still contact us, send us a letter. But I think that we need a law in Australia where if you genuinely are exposing some wrongdoing in a hospital, a local council, a school, parent-teacher association, whatever it is, you should have protection. If what you're trying to expose is corrupt behaviour, you should be protected from prosecution. I think that's the bottom line of the law reform that we need. Sorry, Nina, you... I just wanted to say something that just relates to what John just said, but also something that you guys were both saying before, is that sometimes Australia's quite complacent about journalists' activities and right to operate, which are not set in stone by any means, but sometimes it takes sort of a, someone from the outside or a broader look at the situation for us to realise that actually it's not that great. In particular with the Geoffrey Rush case, and the New York Times reporting on the Yale Stone allegations and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden, we had headlines saying there cannot be a Me Too movement in Australia because of defamation law. And that really, you know, I've grown up in this country. I've lived my whole ABC career in this country. And you get to know media law and you that's the environment that you join. But 
all of a sudden when someone comes from outside and says actually women can't say what happened to them you go oh oh that's not good and I think the same thing is what John was getting at with the AFP raids all of a sudden the eyes of the world were on us and we weren't the free freely spoken democracy that we think we are and whether that will change something I don't know but changes something in our public perception I think well the New York Times running a story to just to draw on Sarah's point a week ago after the raids is Australia the world's most secretive democracy mm. and for me one of the low moments of the last two weeks was when I saw that a Chinese newspaper ran a story about this brutal crackdown on the media in Australia <laughs> and I thought wow if the Chinese think it's a brutal crackdown <laughs> we're not doing too well but I think Sarah's right. It does often take an event or an outside opinion. I think, in retrospect, I think the AFP raids on the ABC and on Annika Smethurst's house will be seen as perhaps a turning point. Either we move for action now, and I think the media has been way too complacent in the last 10 years or so as these powers have increased. If this is not enough to make us wake up, the public and the media, to change and to get protections for democracy and for media, nothing will. I think we will slowly slip into what that Hungarian journalist said to me, the slow bulldozer will roll over you. The slow bulldozer has arrived at our property and it's about to start coming into the backyard. We've just got to say, no, you're not coming in here. I And I would agree with all of that. And the one thing that I would add to it is in terms of what I wish the public understood and that's the price that whistleblowers are paying because we talked, you know, I've talked quite a bit tonight about my experience of some of the stresses that we face around the laws and defamation and, and, you know, and exposure to trauma content and also when you get a story wrong sometimes, there are two stories that I've done that I really regret doing because of the harm that they caused grieving individuals in one case and a grieving family in another and, and that's hard as a journalist and as a human being but the price that those families, but also the price that whistleblowers pay is extraordinary. And the ABC in particular has done some fantastic reporting around the Me Too stuff, the Don Burke story, amazing. And what it costs those women to come forward and to, particularly to be on TV and to speak their truth and to see some individuals in the public respond by saying, oh, it's a witch hunt, oh, fake news, hashtag fake news, I think reflects not just a level of either victim blaming or, you know, accusing women of, of lying and making things up, but it also shows a real ignorance around journalism and defamation because to get a story like the Don Burke story stacked up to the point where you can run it, that's... That takes some meticulous research and I think, you know, to pay credit, I think the ABC did a pretty darn extraordinary job on that. And so, I, you know, and I'll just give one other story very quickly from my own experience, but a while back I was actually working with Lorna Knowles from the Investigations Unit at the ABC about some whistleblowers in residential colleges attached to universities who were speaking out about hazing and one of the whistleblowers that was coming forward right up until the day before she still had she had the option to be anonymous and she said no i really want to do it I, I want to use my name and when we were filming we were talking about you know going to that question before about what how do you prepare someone for a story like this and what care do you take around them we had done a lot of work with her like who in your family and friends do you need to tell that this story is coming out so they're not learning what's happened to you via the media because that can be a really hard way to learn something terrible's happened we did a lot of work with her around shutting down aspects of her social media we did safety planning for her that week making sure that she had someone to go with her 
between classes, that kind of thing. And when I said, how are you feeling about this story coming out? She said, well, I've cancelled my 21st birthday. And I said, why? And she said, because everybody invited to my 21st birthday goes to that college and no one is going to speak to me after this comes out. And when you're talking to a 20, 21-year-old kid, I mean, I don't mean to call them a kid and sound patronising. They're, they're a young adult and they're making a really, really brave decision. And then to see that story come out and then to see people respond to that story by saying hashtag fake news or to see the sorts of reactions that she got from some individuals on her campus was heartbreaking. And that's the price that they're willing to pay. And every time I do a story on sexual assault, I ask two questions. My two questions are, what's your objective in telling your story? And what are you afraid of right now? And when I ask them what they're afraid of, they're afraid that they're not going to be believed or that they're going to be blamed for the violence that they've experienced. Some are afraid of physical repercussions as well. And when I say, well, what is your objective in telling your story? I can say overwhelmingly, the number one thing that they say is to stop it happening to somebody else. And so these are highly altruistic people who are paying a great personal cost to try to make the world a better place for the person that comes after them. And I wish the public knew that so that when they see a story break, like the kinds of reporting that you guys are doing, they don't just dismiss it and say, oh, this is a witch hunt, oh, this is me too, gone too far. They actually have some insight into the courage that it takes, but also how difficult defamation-wise it is to get a story like that across the line. Yes, and to add to that, Nina's right in terms of the thoroughness, like the Don Burke story was probably six months in the making. There's an excellent story going to air tonight on 7.30 by Andy Park, one of the, the better reporters. He's a terrific reporter at the ABC. It's about two boys who are struggling with depression. And for many, many months now, Andy has been liaising with the pet, the mothers, the fathers, the, the doctors, the boys themselves, you know, the thoroughness of it is extraordinary. He's, each of the boys, he's taken aside separately, talked to them away from the parents, are you sure, are you happy to do this interview? The thoroughness that we put into stories. So it really is disappointing when the enemies of the ABC or the media in general, it's almost like the longer you work on a story and the more thorough it is, the more savage the response will be. I did one story about a criminal barrister, Charles Waterstreet, as part of the Me Too series. And the women who were in that story, they signed affidavits. They provide huge amounts of contemporaneous evidence. It was fact-checked and fact-checked and fact-checked. Legal war all over it. We never got a defamation lawsuit out of in response. But let me tell you, the amount of hours that we... and the amount of evidence that we had to have in order to publish something like that was... Yeah, it was, it's, it's a very, very meticulous, methodical process and it's not something that you just kind of, oh, somebody calls you up and says, oh, this has happened to me and you go, oh, that's great yarn, we'll publish that. It's, it's nothing like that. It's, mm. it's laborious and, yeah. Yeah, it's not very glam, unfortunately. <laughs> but in terms of the, the price paid, I have some experience of this, but Nina also has experience of this. You've asked yourself to pay that price. You've told your own story, which must be about as fun as drinking glass. And that is something that... So I also sort of came out about my personal circumstances and donor conception and stuff. 
And that was a really interesting exercise, having been a journalist, having asked other people to do this for so many years, then doing it myself and feeling like, you know, a raw, whimpering little baby, essentially. It's a big deal. It's a big deal to tell the world very personal things about yourself. And you do have to contact, you know, your cousins just by the way, you know, this happened and it might be on national television and I'm really sorry if you find out, you know, before you get this message. But it's good to have a sense of the enormity of what you're asking your sources. I think I think that's very healthy. And that's how you began, in fact, isn't it, Nina? So when before I became a journalist, I was a media student and I was the victim of a quite brutal assault while travelling home and I was it was a stranger danger type assault where I was bashed and held at blade point and told I was going to be killed and I escaped. And I was indecently uh, sexually assaulted and that story came out. So I was 23 when that happened and that story came out um, publicly and I waived my right to anonymity and spoke about it and that was my entry into the media was actually as someone being interviewed, not as someone doing the interviewing. And based on that experience, I gained a huge amount of personal insight and empathy into what it is to... You know, I said before that the nature of sexual violence is that it takes control away from you. It also is about power abuse. And if as a survivor you're going through any subsequent process, whether it's a counselling process, a criminal justice process or a media process, if you feel powerless at all during that process, it can exacerbate underlying trauma. And there was a lot that I didn't know. So, you know, one of the things that I had said to a particular person was that I had made a police statement. Now that editor went, without my knowledge, to the police to verify that, yes, in fact, I had made a police statement. And now they have to do that. They're fact-checking. But I didn't know that. And I experienced that as she doesn't believe me and betrayal. Why didn't she just ask me for a copy of the police statement? And now I know, well, she was just fact-checking and she probably didn't think to ask me about it. But now when I'm working with survivors, I always take a little bit of extra time to explain to them here is what I'm doing and here is why I need to do it. So if I'm reporting on a particular institution that has covered up their sexual assault, I have to go to that institution and give them a right of reply. That's balanced journalism. But I will always tell them that I'm doing that and I'll tell them the day that I'm doing that so that they, if they get wind of that through some other channel, that doesn't catch them off guard. So there's, I mean, there's little things like that that you learn along the way, but it was a baptism by fire, but it's given me an insight into to what it's like to actually sit on the other side. Thank you all. It's really, really helpful to hear you describe how you work and, and what goes into it. And I think that's been very interesting for all of us here tonight. I think obviously this is a really important time to be engaged in the news, to be engaged civically and I would encourage you if you do feel strongly about this, check out the journalismisnotacrime.org website, send a letter to your local member and add your voice to this discussion because it's going to be ongoing. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Thanks to John, thanks to Sarah and thanks to Nina for sharing so much. Have a great evening. listening to the Walkley Talks podcast with me, Claire Fletcher. You can find links to all the stories mentioned in this discussion in our show notes. Sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe 
and you'll be the first to learn about our new episodes, events, and other opportunities. If you enjoyed this episode of Walkley Talks, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. And while you're there, please take a moment to rate us. This podcast is produced by Kevin Suarez with help from the two SER studios in Sydney, Australia. Thank you.